today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The results of Ontario's cannabis lottery should be coming today. This has to do with uh, the regulation of pot sales in the province. Uh, how are the other provinces doing this, though? Are they having the same sort of situations, problems, and challenges that we are? Obviously, as in with alcohol across the province, the way it is done is vastly different as you go from province to province to province. To talk more about all of this, Matt Mauer, uh, Mauer is with us, Vice Chair of Cannabis Law Group at uh, Torkin Mains LLP, and is with us now. Matt, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Thanks, Scott. Uh, are other provinces having the same growing pains that Ontario seems to be having? Uh, you know, yes and no. The other provinces, for the most part, are, have sort of finished their rollout or are getting close to finishing their rollout. Ontario was one of the last ones, and that's in part because of the election um, that we had, which we knew might change things, uh, and also the, the shifting gears that Doug Ford did um, you know, since, since he's, he's come into power as premier. Uh, certainly, of course, you can see how the election would change things as, as two different parties were in power over the the rollout of this. Uh, what are the biggest challenges right now for Ontario? It seems to be supply. Is is that the case in other provinces? Yeah, you know, that that's an issue that, that we're having across the country. And what happened in Alberta is Alberta was going to give out, out essentially unlimited licenses, just like Ontario was going to do. And then uh, a few months ago, you know, they sort of stopped right in the middle of the process. Some people had been licensed. Some were still in the process. A lot were still in the process. And the provincial government in Alberta said, we're not giving out any more licenses indefinitely until the supply shortage uh, eases because our existing licensees don't have enough product to put on their shelves. So, you know, the government made the decision to sort of for lack of a better word, protect the existing licensees at the expense of the people who had already gone halfway through the process and now have to sit on hold. And then what we had in Ontario was, we're going to give out unlimited licenses, and then all of a sudden it's, well, hang on, we're only going to give out 25 to start because of the supply issue, and then we'll, we'll gradually ramp it up as, as the supply issue gets alleviated. Uh, as you mentioned, that is uh, the position that the Ford PCs have, have, have taken. Uh, they have said that due to the supply situation, uh, they're only allowing limited licenses, uh, 25 down from the 40 even that uh, Kathleen Wynne had, had put forward. Is this a valid reason, the, the, the shortage of, of supply, or is that a problem for the private sector to deal with since these are private-run situ- uh, companies? Well, you know, it depends who you ask and what their opinion is. The supply shortage is currently a real thing. Like, there's product available, but the variety of product um, comes and goes, and, you know, the amount of what's out there at any given time comes and goes. But I think, you know, there's different ways to have gone about this. One of them is to do a lottery and restrict the initial amount of of licenses, or maybe do it differently, but still restrict the initial amount. Um, another, Another way to do it, would have been to say we're going to give out licenses to anyone who wants them and but we can't promise you that there's going to be product for you to sell so move ahead at your own risk and you know and when the supply shortage fixes itself then you know everyone will have product to sell what's interesting in ontario versus alberta is that in alberta there is no online retail and in ontario the government owns the online retail, as, as we currently know right now. And once these 25 stores and subsequent stores open, the government has said that they're going to continue to maintain the online retail for themselves, and the private retailers will get the... So it's, I find it interesting that the government's saying, we don't have enough product, so we're going to restrict the licenses to sort of protect these businesses. And the real question is, or maybe not the real question, but an interesting question is, how does that relate to the fact that the the provincial government is going to continue to sell online while restricting the licenses to other people for bricks and mortar stores? And since the government controls uh, the production and, and growing of all of this, wouldn't it make sense for them to make sure that their online services are covered before everybody else? Yeah, you know, the provincial government. In other words, control they the control. Production. They control. They control the, the distribution. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so the question is, let's say you know. Uh, are open if everything goes well and we're still having supply issues you know the question is how much of the product and who's deciding what goes into the government's pile to sell through their website and what goes to the retailers to sell in their stores 
And, you know, the government has assured everyone that they will treat the retailers fairly, whatever that might mean. And who knows how transparent they'll be. Maybe they'll be fully transparent with how they're going to do this. But it, it is an issue because you've got the government basically being a competitor and the regulator, you know, wearing two different hats at the same time. Uh, are the PCs buying time here till this all settles down? Uh, is this politics or, or, or are these reasons valid? I think the reasons are valid. I think I think they are buying time until it settles down. I think because they don't want it to blow up in their face. And I think they, they looked around and they said, geez, Alberta's cutting off the licenses because there's not enough product. What's it going to look like if we start handing out hundreds of licenses? And, and, you know, let's get it clear. There's a lot of people that want licenses that really have never been in business, owned a store, owned a retail, done anything like that. But they think this is a great opportunity and it very well might be for some people. Um, and what, what's going to happen when now we've got 200, 300, 400 stores and everyone's looking at us asking for product and we can't provide it to them. And then they're going to say, well, why did you give us a license if you have nothing to sell us? So yeah. I think they probably took the lesser of what they thought was two evils and decided to go down this route. And it is what it is. Uh, your thoughts on the use of a lottery system. Many have thought, well, why not a merit-based system on this? As you said, there's a lot out there just seeing this as, you know, uh, the golden goose kind of thing. And yeah, let's get in on it. And like any business, most of them fail. Yeah. And look, it's still going to be merit-based. The lottery system is just, if you win, it's just the, the right to apply for a license. So you still have to go through the process. You still have to demonstrate you've got a store we don't know exactly all the requirements because they haven't released them yet, but we know from other provinces you're going to have to show financial capability. You might have to show you've got some experience in running retail or regulated products or things like that. Um, I think, you know, look, you can second guess the way it gets done any way it gets done. But, you know, certainly you could have done some more pre-screening. One thing, one one way you could have gone about it was to say, you can apply for your operator license, which has a $6,000 fee attached to it. And once anyone who, who gets an operator license can then go in the lottery for a specific store location. And you only get one store to start. And that way we sort of called the herd at the start. And it's only the people that are willing to put in six grand to get that license, uh, the overall operator license, that might be rewarded with a store. But then you're complaining, saying, why should I have to fork out six grand? Uh, are we losing Matt here? Are you still there, Matt? I'm still here. Okay, yeah, sorry, you were dropping in and out there. Uh, what about balancing these 25 licenses out between uh, mom and pop and, and, and corporations? Uh, how's that going to work? Well, it's like I said, it's a lottery system, so there's not going to be much balancing. And look, I don't think you're going to see a lot of mom and pops, even if, even if mom and pop win you know, you're going to need hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're going to need to be able to open by April 1st. If not, they've already said there's going to be financial penalties uh, up to at least $50,000 if you're not ready. So if a mom and pop were to win, they're going to need help. And they're going to need help from someone that's got a location, that has a plan, that might have money, um, because the timelines are going to be incredibly tight. There could be mom and pops down the road, but, you know, I guess uh, thinking about it, this might make it more difficult for mom and pop because by the time the real mom and pops are in a position to be successful, uh, these bigger companies will have had a head start on them. So what will we know later today? What will transpire later today? Well, they, they've said they're going to do the lottery today. I don't know if that means during the day or by 11.59 p.m., and then they said they're going to release a list on their website, the AGCO, within 24 hours. So that could come out today, could come out tomorrow night, somewhere in that range. And we're going to see a list of, of 25 people or companies probably that have won, uh, what, what regions they're in. And then if not right away, then in fairly short order, they've said they're going to release a list of everyone that went into the lottery and where they rank um, in the selection system. So wow, are you a, are you surprised we're hearing that information? Yeah, a little bit, but you know what? They're using an automated system. Uh, they're using a, some computer system to do it, so it's it's not hard to to release it. Um, I don't know if they announced that they were going to do that before people decided to apply, but mind you, there is a window to withdraw your application even after the lottery. So if you didn't want your name on that list, there's probably a window to get your name off that 
you know, overall applicant list before it comes out. Of those 25 that uh, get awarded today, can they, uh, each of them gets, those are 25 separate licensees with one store, correct? Correct. Uh, will they get to be a part of the next lottery with adding more stores to their chain? Is that what you're expecting? Like these will be the base 25 and then from here it will expand? Or for another lottery, when this settles down, I guess, a bit, will it be 25 more? Well, the government's been pretty unclear about how this is going to work in the future. You know, it wasn't clear, and it's still not entirely clear, whether number 26 on the list is the next person to get a license right? or whether they're going to do another lottery. They've said, you know, we're going to release the full list. There's a waiting list as well for people that, for whatever reason, can't go through and get their license. And, you know, though, and most recently I've read, we're going to use that list in that order to grant subsequent licenses unless we change things again. Um, so, you know, I think what they want to do, the first 25, you're only allowed to get one. Uh, you're not allowed to get more than one. You're not allowed to be affiliated with anyone who's got uh, a license as well or even another application in the lottery. So I think they're going to try to spread them around. But certainly at some point in time, we don't know exactly when that is. We're going to move back to sort of an open application system, and whether it's then or before then, we'll wait and see. But existing retailers will be able to add additional stores into their chain, so to speak. Uh, obviously, you don't have a crystal ball, but considering when this all started with the Premier, it was an, a, a more of an open market type affair and unlimited licenses. Um how, how do you get here just with supply, and where do you see what do you see the next steps being? Considering at one time it was it was an open market. Once the supply issue gets ironed out, do you see them returning to that, or is this sort of a sign they're putting on the brakes a bit? No, I think they're going to go back to a full on open up the system. I think they'll be probably a little bit cautious. They'll want to make sure that the supply issue really has rectified itself. And look, there's experts in the industry that say the supply issue across the country could last two to three years. Um, other people think by the spring it'll have rectified itself. Um, there's a lot of moving pieces. There's new companies getting licensed to grow. The companies are getting better at growing. They're expanding their facilities. Um, so we're going to have to wait and see. But I think once the government is comfortable that the supply issue sort of leveled itself out, they're going to start opening it up um, to just regular, regular licensing process. Uh, we're hearing reports about uh, uh, police closing down uh, distributors that are now open illegally. Hamilton is an area where uh, there's been reports of up to 30 uh, illegal distributors in the city that they're, I guess, now starting to close down. Will we see that speed up as we get closer to this? Where where does that leave that whole other, uh, I mean, 30 stores that are already here? Wow, where does that, where do you go from there? Yeah, like those stores should be, you know, I think the provincial government did a good job in managing um, getting managing to get a lot of those stores closed before October 17th. And they did that by saying, and this varied across the country as well. In Ontario, they said, if you operate an illegal storefront right now, because we all know they were all over the province in, in the months and weeks leading up to legalization, yeah. if you shut down by October 17th, you are eligible, you're, you are not disqualified on the basis that you previously had an illegal store from applying to get a retail license. However, if you keep your store open past October 17th, you will never get a license from us to retail cannabis in the province. So I think they did a good job. I think in Toronto, um, I, what I read is they went from 90-something stores down to 10 that they know about that are still operating. So they, they managed that well. And look, I think it's only a matter of time um, they went from being storefronts to being delivery services to being online. And it's just going to be a process till you know, the black market is eventually weeded out. And it's going to take some time. And, you know, look, some people will say they're providing a, a service right now, which is being able to provide a product that is, you know, technically legal, even though black market cannabis is not. But, uh, you know, cannabis itself is legal and the government can't supply it. So we can. So we're f we're filling a need right now. Uh, what about those uh, distributing it that are in the medical sphere? Does this in, does this uh, involve them at all? or Are they still fine in terms of the patients or the companies, the companies, the, the storefronts? 
Well, all the storefronts that are medical are illegal. So, so they are still considered illegal, even though they, you, you know, are requiring cards and all that sort of thing. Correct. And that was one of the big misconceptions that a lot of people had, you know, leading up to legalization. Even now, it's, you know, well, if you have a medical prescription or it's only if you're over 19 and it's like it didn't matter if you're selling anything out of a storefront. And, and to this day, if you're selling anything out of a, any cannabis out of a storefront in the province, it's it's illegal. So. You know, the medical patients still have, and there's a lot of debate and people have different opinions on this, but from a regulatory perspective, the medical patients still have access and their access is to go right to the growers, order online and have it shipped to their house. And, you know, are there, there's, all, there's more tension too and discussion about, you know, are, are these companies um, putting their product into the recreational side of the market at the expense of their medical patients? Some right. companies are, some companies are not, but... Um, there's a lot of moving pieces right now. What will this look like, Matt, by summer? What will it look like one year from now? I think by summer, you know, you're going to see the 25 stores, or probably all of them open. Um, you'll see the product selection will have improved. The product will be in stores more consistently. You know, there still might be issues, but I don't think it'll be bad as it is now. And I think as you get closer, it's, it's hard, but, you know, as we get closer to a year from now, I think you're going to see a lot more stores you're going to see the supply have, have really leveled out a lot better. And I think in a couple of years, you're, you know, you're going to see stores, I don't want to say everywhere, but a sufficient amount of stores. And it'll be like the LCBO or the beer store. You know, there'll, there'll be products. Sometimes they'll be out of stock. Sometimes there won't. But no one will really be talking about, you know, wholesale shortages in the alcohol industry or anything like Or is there enough stores? It'll, it'll just be and it'll be okay. Uh, does shortage increase price at this time? That's an interesting question. Um, in some provinces, the government sets the limits at what prices can be charged by the retailer. Um, Ontario has said they are not going to dictate the price at which product can be sold. Um, the risk is that if you Doesn't, sell, isn't there going to be like a minimum? Isn't there like a minimum you can you can't just like with alcohol you can't sell it below this price? I believe there is a minimum, but they're not going to set a maximum on the on what can um, what the price can be right. can go for. And I think your question was, you know, if there's a scarcity, doesn't the price right. go up? Yeah. And I think the answer is no, because you've still got the black market that you're competing with. So if a retailer says, well, there's not a lot of product, I'm really going to jack up the price, serious consumers or long-term consumers are going to say, well, I'm just going to go find it in the black market until this nonsense ends. And people who don't typically otherwise consume are going to say, well, I'm not really going to get into cannabis. Like, it's Forty dollars a gram—that's crazy. I'm just going to go, you know, do something else or or not try it entirely. Matt Maurer has been with us, vice chair of Cannabis Law Group at Torkin Mains LLP. Matt, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We know what's happened uh, in regard to uh, the U.S. government shutdown. Uh, the president of the United States uh, earlier this week had a presidential address where he talked about the wall and the shutting down of the government uh, the day after, which was yesterday. I actually went down to the border and uh, and did some press conferences there as well. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Has Donald Trump painted himself into a corner on this one? Not necessarily. As some people have suggested, and they may be right, this is actually a position that he personally likes to be in. And again, we're just talking about him, not everybody affected by the shutdown, not even actually the politicians dealing with him in terms of the shutdown. Mm-hmm. He just likes this situation. He likes to you know, basically throw you know, imaginary fists in the air, fight back as much as he possibly can, throw different ideas out, make statements, make speeches. And while we occasionally read reports, and there have been several out there, that he said even before he actually made his first presidential address on TV this week, that he felt, and I believe it was the New York Times that quoted him, something to the effect of, I don't know what the point of this is, it's not going to change anything, but my advisors have told me to do it. I think in the grand scheme of things, he just is a very combative individual who enjoys being in situations where he can bring out what some people would regard as the worst traits of a human being, but he would probably regard as some of his better traits. And this is the type of scenario he loves, and he just basically 
it's something that he would just clamor for as much as he possibly can. Is that because of his ego or he's trying to distract? Sometimes, you know, we see all of this bluster to distract from the fact there's really nothing there. There's no, yeah, there, there's no yeah. point. No, no, you're right. That's fair to say. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, that is, it is part of his personality. I think people have attributed this to him as far back as his days when he was still a businessman. I think this is just who he is as a person. But yeah, I mean, uh, we've talked about it on air. He throws out a lot of trial balloons. He wants to sort of see what the reaction is going to be like. And if it's positive, he'll keep going. If it's negative, he won't ever apologize for it, but he might obviously try to either segue into a different discussion or change it altogether. So I think it's part and parcel of the man. You know, this is a very complex individual overall. It's not as simple as some people say it is. Yes, he obviously makes a lot of mistakes. Yes, he makes a, he hits a lot of pitfalls and drops into the wrong area at times, or at least doesn't really give a lot of thought in terms of what he does if he takes three steps forward, what those three steps entail. But I, I think it's a combination of both, to be quite honest. So reaction after that TV appearance and subsequent tour of the border, is he, is he winning this, this war on, uh, with the media, with, with propaganda? Well, again, it depends on your perspective. I would imagine from the White House, although there would probably be some people privately who are frustrated with the situation, I think they would probably take a positive outlook and say that the president continues to hold firm on his message. He will not relent to pressure. He has tried to work with the Democrats. He's invited them several times to the White House, but nothing has been accomplished. We all heard about the, the last meeting where he basically, according to some sources, stormed out of the room and says, a waste of time, bye-bye, and off he went. Mm. And, again, I have no idea if that's true. You know, whenever you have an anonymous source, it's always it's hard to say sometimes. Sometimes it's accurate. Sometimes it's a bit of an embellishment. You just have to sort of guess it. In terms of the southern border, if we move past the presidential address and things like that, um, I think what really has happened now is interesting is sort of two sides. One, there, was a, there were obviously comments that were out that Trump didn't necessarily want to go to the southern border for anything other than just a tour stop. Like He didn't think it would really accomplish a great deal. Right. If you believe that statement, well, you almost wonder what the point was. But when he actually got there, I, I thought that overall it went okay. You know, he had his meetings with different Texas officials and uh, went through a number of scenarios. The one weird thing that came out, and you may have already mentioned on your radio program, is he actually mused at his press conference about Texas paying for the border wall. And you can imagine, it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat in Texas, you can imagine people almost pulling out their hair, saying, we're not going to be the only state that's going to do this. How can you even propose something like this? But again, this is Donald Trump in action. He's, you know, he tries to change the narrative as often as he can. He knows full well nothing like that would ever happen. But it makes people talk. It makes them think. It creates memes. It creates big moments on social media hmm. and gives them something to tweet about at 3.30 a.m. Uh, should he just have signed the original proposal that the, the Republicans and the Democrats agreed on? Um, when this is all over, will he end up just doing that? Or, or some abbreviated version of that he could claim a win around. Now, are you referring to the original proposal from months ago or the one more recently done? Uh, more recently that Mitch McConnell took to him and then everybody thought that the shutdown was avoided and that didn't happen. Yeah, well, if we're talking about that one, I mean, in retrospect, yes. I, I still think it's better to not have a government shutdown, be it a partial or full one. It's not beneficial to anyone involved, including a president of the United States who faces a re-election bid next year. Um, will come back to haunt him? I guess the, in the grand scheme of things, it depends how long this partial government shutdown lasts. We're now roughly three weeks into it. There's no end in sight. One has to assume it's going to at least go on for another few weeks, if nothing else. The proposal that was put in front of him seemed to be decent enough. I believe, from what I understand, Trump sort of viewed it as just kicking the can down the road, and he thought it was not beneficial at all. Plus, he still obviously doesn't have the guarantee of the more than $5 billion he needs for his border wall or for the funding the border wall with Mexico. For that reason, he decided to pass on it, and we're sort of in the same stage. Will he live to regret it? I mean, look, you can go back in terms of politics. 
history, different military battles, and people can always second-guess at the end. Right now, he believes that he has the right strategy because he wants that, you know, he wants that money for the border wall. And now, as you've probably noticed today, just in the last few hours, what most of us thought, including me, that he would discuss during his televised presidential address that he didn't get into is now popping up even more. The discussion that he's going to bypass Congress altogether, declare the situation a national emergency, and try to get the funding for the wall with Mexico that way. And that's probably what we're going to see maybe later tonight or within the certain sometime early next week as his strategy moving forward. How do leaders, how did do the leaders feel uh, that are running the states along the borders he's talking about? Are they behind Trump? Do they agree with him? Well, I, I think some of them would certainly agree with the theory behind it, yeah. which is that they're they're frustrated by what they've seen in terms of problems with gangs, with drugs, with crime, things that have come over the border. Now, you obviously know the numbers have been bandied about quite a bit, but certainly over the decades that has been an issue. So they would probably look at it, and obviously they're mostly concerned, those border states with illegal immigration, they would probably at least see it that, well, this president, it may not be the idea we necessarily want, but at least he's willing to tackle it. Mm Mm-hmm. The trick really then comes into play is that they, they're probably also frustrated because if some of them are facing a re-election bid, and I believe a couple of them are, they're looking at this partial government shutdown as hitting not only the president, not only the Congress, but hitting them directly at home. Because even amongst their supporters, there's going to be a lot of frustration that it, doesn't, it may not directly affect American families, say, living in Texas or New Mexico, for example, but at the same time, it will obviously irritate them to know that the government is not running efficiently and effectively on a day-to-day basis. That is something that plays on the minds of Americans, or at least it should, and that is something that will definitely play on the mind with voters. Is Donald Trump's terminology softening on this? It seems odd because it it appears to an outsider that these two sides are really closer than they think. They both want border security. The stumbling block is the terminology around the wall, whether it's paid for by this person or that person or that country or whatever, or whether it's made of concrete or steel. Um, how, how, How do you bring these two sides together that really in the end want the same thing? Yeah, well, I mean, you're right, and there's two points to it. You're right, the language of the president does seem to be changing. I mean, the the most recent one, and again, I'm sorry, you may have already discussed this on your station, which just, I think, basically threw people for a loop, was when Donald Trump said, oh, no, I never expected Mexico to pay for that wall. I didn't, or, or basically his line was, I didn't expect them to write me a check. Well, yeah, of course not. I, and it's true, he's never used that line before. No. But a number of publications, including Fortune magazine, gathered 20 different examples that Donald Trump has said when he's talked about a border wall and found roughly, of those 20, about 13 different ways that he suggested yeah. that the, the wall's going to be paid for. So you have that insanity on the one end, plus his commentary that came out recently that, oh, no, no, that the Democrats wanted me to change it from a concrete wall to steel. Right. And... With all due respect, and I don't like the Democrats, I'd be a Republican in the United States, there is no Democrat who would have ever called for something like that. One, because most Democrats today are opposed to the border wall. And two, why would they want to put steel structure on top that would cost five to ten times more money than the initial concrete wall would? Mm. So is the language changing? It's modifying. But that, again, is sort of a trait that President Donald Trump has had since he took office. Does that mean he's losing this battle? I don't think it's necessarily that he's losing his battle. I think he's about, as I said, with the the theory of the national emergency coming to play, I think he's about to shift gears. Now, indeed, even though he obviously likes this situation, most of his senior advisors would tell him that the longer that the government is shut down, the worse off you'll be especially with other things looming around, including Michael Cohen's uh, public testimony to the Senate coming up shortly, he doesn't need to have this battle going on at the same time. 
So if he attempts to at least bypass Congress and go a different route, yes, it will probably go into the U.S. Supreme Court because they're going to have to define what a national emergency actually entails and whether the president's power to call this so-called national emergency is absolute. That at least then pushes it off the table in terms of dealing with the government shutdown. And it may make it easier for everyone to sort of quieten them down, let the judicial battle fight on its own, and then get the government back up and running. That's one possibility. Or he may just decide to sort of keep it shut down until the Supreme Court makes a ruling, and then you have all these things swirling about at the same time, which anybody who has been involved in politics, like myself, know that the more controversies you have to deal with in a single moment, the worse off it is, because mm. you can't really expend your energies trying to get away of one problem. You have to get rid of several, and that's very, very difficult to do. So I don't think it's necessary that he feels he's losing the battle, or that things are changing, or that everything's about to, about to adjust in some way. I think he just realizes that in the end, ultimately, he, as he's known from the very beginning, the Democrats aren't going to give him his way. He's not going to get his money in the traditional sense of the word. He probably should have done it differently in his first two years in office, and now he's going to have to go a route that most people would not have suggested he ever tackle in the first place. Does declaring a national emergency cure the shutdown issue, though? It, not necessarily. A lot of people think it might, because then at least the government can be operational again, as I said, while they deal with that in the courts. But it doesn't necessarily have to go hand in hand. For all I know and for all we know, the president and his advisors may decide to keep, the as I said, the government shut down during this whole time while, say, the U.S. Supreme Court goes through it, parses the language, you know, tries to figure out whether via the Constitution it can be legal or not, because the ramifications for now and in the future are immense, because if, you know, if passed, it would allow all presidents who come after Trump, be they Democrats or Republicans, they would have the ability to call national emergencies themselves on a wide range of things that we can't even think of right now, and a lot of them would get through. So it makes it problematic in that instance. But does one begat the other? No, not necessarily. Uh, with the base, it's making America great again, helping the average Joe. However, we're seeing more and more uh, clips of workers that are having trouble making ends meet, and he's right. actually hurting these people. True. D does that change the discussion? Will that sway uh, opinion? Well, it, it hasn't. Well, opinion has been swayed, but will it change the president's opinion? Not necessarily, because well, we've been talking about it for three weeks. Certainly, Republican leaders, both in the in the House of Representatives and the Senate, have discussed this issue, and obviously, everyone is pushing along with it. You know, from Lindsey Graham to Mitch McConnell and others, that all of these workers will get all the money that is owed to them once the government is is operational again, and these departments are no longer shut down. Right. All of that's true, but that doesn't resolve the issues that these workers have to deal with right now, which could be paying their rent, paying mortgages, buying food, buying diapers, whatever it may be, things that in most households you at least have a little bit around where you can scrape it all together and survive month to month, or if you're in good shape, you know, carry on month to month. Um, a lot of those people are sort of in a, a very terrible state right now, and some of the news organizations, like CNN, not too long ago, brought a, wo brought a woman who is affected by the government shutdown. I believe her husband was, is no te you know, temporarily at home based on it. I think he worked in the park system, if I'm not mistaken. And her interview was conducted while she had her little baby sitting in her arms. To sort of wow, good for CNN, eh? <laughs> exactly. Well, it's predictable, but that's exactly what they want to show. That the they seem to have fallen off the edge. The CNN does seem to have fallen off the edge of a cliff here, haven't they? <laughs> I know it's taken a long time for me to admit that to you, Michael, but I, I can see it. My goodness. I, I'm amazed it took you this long to see it. I saw it <laughs> but, you know, the scary thing is, really, this is long before Donald Trump. Like, my, yeah. my, my dislike for CNN goes back many, many years. It goes well into the Obama administration and even beyond that into George W. Bush. This, is, this news network was, at one point, the pinnacle. It really was. Everyone yeah. watched CNN yeah. for 24-hour news coverage, and it had really good reporting in the 80s and 90s. 
just everything has turned around. It's just become wildly partisan, much the same way, in fairness, Fox News, MSNBC, and others have also become wildly partisan. There's That's no middle-of-the-road yeah. position in the U.S. All right, uh, getting back to Trump, is this a turning point? I mean, how many times have I asked you that question? Uh, is this <laughs> a turning point? <laughs> You've asked it many. You'll probably ask it many more. And guess what my answer is going to be, Scott? It's the same as always. Yeah. No, it isn't a turning point. This is not, a, you know, I've said it a million times, I, this is not a conventional politician. This isn't even a man who was a politician before. He just sort of marches the beat of his own drum and does what he feels is best. It's just basically following your gut, not some sort of political playbook. For that reason, it doesn't change his strategy. He's going to keep barreling forward and do what he feels is best for the country and obviously for himself. And thus far, I mean, obviously, at least in terms of his his base, the red meat conservatives, or shall we say the red meat Trumpists that he currently has right now, he's pretty safe there. Like, people who are loyal to him will follow him to the ends of the earth, and they still will to this day. So he's got his base intact. And I still think that as now people are starting to suggest in recent articles, maybe you've seen some of them, they're stating that really anybody who tries to challenge Donald Trump for the 2020 GOP presidential nomination is almost literally wasting their time because Trump has basically got his tentacles in all the different states and he has a lot of loyalists who are ready to support him for his second run if he chooses to run again and he's able to. So I don't think you're going to see much of a difference in terms of the way Donald Trump approaches anything because I think he's just one particular animal, and he likes the way he is. Whether we like it or not, it's different. He likes the way he does things. He's quite content with it, and I don't see him changing anytime soon. Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thank you for your time. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I remember having this discussion uh, several times with expats when, uh, usually around election time, uh, in regard to their uh, ability to vote while living outside the country or inability to vote. The Supreme Court of Canada has sided with Canadian expats over the decision to allow them to vote. To talk more about all of this, Alan Nichols is with us, President of the Canadian Expats, and with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Of course. Thanks to uh, speak with you, Scott. Uh, why is this so important to expats? Many who are not living out, outside the country sure. probably don't uh, uh, see the importance of this. And many will say that, you know, if you're out of the country so long, how do you deserve to, to have a right in, or a say in, in, in how it's being handled? What are your thoughts on all of this? Well, you know, I think, first of all, I think it's a good day for Canada as a whole. This is uh, a great move for Canadian democracy, regardless of of who you are. But in terms of Canadians that are abroad, there's a a whole swath of individuals that um, live abroad. There's 2.8 million Canadians. A good portion of those are doing a great deal for Canada. They pay taxes. They move back to Canada. They they come back to Canada. They visit family. Or maybe they're working for chambers of commerce or business councils in Dubai. Um, on behalf of Canadians, uh, the Canadian government relies a great deal on these organizations and those people to help support uh, trade from Canada to the countries that they're living in. And what this does really is justifies the activity that they've been doing. Uh, they're excited to be a part of Canada to be able to do things, even if they've been living abroad for seven, eight, or ten years, they're still working to help Canada. So this really justifies a great deal about what they've been doing. It enfranchises them. It really encourages them to be engaged with the country. And I think Canadians as a whole need to be encouraged by that. I think we need to encourage their engagement uh, with us back home here in Canada so that we can further our economic goals. You know, you bring up an interesting point. Um, many may assume that because they live in another country that expats are not engaged, but by actually telling them they can't vote, you're disengaging them. Exactly. And that's been the concern right from the go. So how did we get to where we are in 1993? How was this an issue? How did we get to the laws we have now? Right. Well, right from the the start, um, Canadian expats were, in fact, not able to vote at all. 
1993, the law was enacted in which enabled Canadians that had lived for uh, less than or five years or less outside of Canada were able to vote. Um, there wasn't a, a, a very strict, a lot of strict guidelines. Um, it wasn't enforced a great deal. But then the Harper government then really enforced that in uh, the you know, early 2000s to, to really limit what Canadians are able to do and and really enforce the fact that they can't vote after or weren't able to, to vote after five years of living abroad. So, so this, of course, carried on for uh, a few years. And then uh, two individuals that are currently living in the United States bought this uh, to the Ontario um, Court of Appeal and said, look, at I think this law is disenfranchising Canadians abroad. I think maybe we should do something about it. The, the Ontario Court said, great, you're, we'll agree with you. Um, the Court of, uh, sorry, the Ontario Court of Appeal again said, no, we disagree with that. And then that brought this up to a charter um, a court case as it is now. And the Supreme Court uh, decided or they ruled this morning that, uh, in fact, Canadians abroad are Canadian citizens, and as Canadian citizens are entitled to be able to vote in federal elections. Your thoughts on on that verdict, and are you surprised? Not surprised entirely, no. I I think the arguments that were levied during the the, the court case were uh, very articulate, and uh, it seemed to me that uh, at least the response from the judges at the time seemed to be to lean towards this sort of a judgment. So I'm not really surprised, very excited about it, very happy about it, but not overly surprised. Do all expats want to vote? I mean, you know, we know no. what the voting rates are in Canada. Is it the same for expats? It's not close to that, you know, and I think one of the arguments that we've heard is that, um, you know, the a huge number of expats will begin to vote in Canadian elections and this will sway the elections one way or another. And I don't think that will happen at all. It's not um, a matter of the number of Canadians that will vote while they're abroad. It's just the fact that they are able to, and that's really the key here. There, there will be a few. I think there was you know, less than 10,000 Canadians uh, abroad that voted in the last election, but it's, it's, that's not the point. The point is that they are able to, and we encourage them to do so. What about the process now, uh, moving forward? How, how will we accommodate this? That's a good question, Scott. Not sure. We'll, this will, uh, we'll have to play this out. We'll see what what happens, of course, the, the federal government has already said um, prior to this ruling that they would repeal the law that was in place so that they would uh, allow Canadian expats to, to vote. But how this plays out uh, in terms of Elections Canada, this is yet to come. We're not sure exactly how this will work. How do other countries handle this? Are we similar? Very similar to most to most Western countries, for sure. There's a, a, most countries that we would consider to be, uh, you know, forerunners in uh, and progressive in around the world. Um, you know, allow their expats to vote, um, and many of them encourage, uh, you know, their expats to in fact run for office, which is not the case here in Canada yet. But you never know. Um, the Switzerland, for example, is is works very hard to engage their their citizens to. Uh, to engage in, in the country, not just politically, but uh, culturally and economically as well. So is this over now? Will, uh, I, I, is this now just going to become standard practice? How will it change things moving forward? Sure. I mean, I, I, that's a good point. And up until now, uh, any political party that came in um, would have been able to enforce or uh, enact their own laws governing whether a Canadian abroad would be able to vote and how they would be able to vote. Uh, but now that the Supreme Court has ruled uh, in favor of expats being able to vote, regardless of the number of years that they've been abroad, uh, it doesn't matter which political party comes into power, uh, Canadian expats will continue to be able to vote. How long did this case come to, uh, did it take for this case to go through the courts? Well, it was March of this year that uh, it was first uh, brought to the Supreme Court, and it was 9.45 this morning that uh, judgment was rendered. Are you surprised it took this long to get a challenge? Yeah, it's a good, good question, really. No, I'm not that surprised. Um, you know, of course, we've been vocal uh, on our front for a, a number of years prior to the challenge coming out, but it really took um, a 
couple of people that were really passionate about living abroad to really bring it to the forefront. Why do you think people were against this? I think there's a lot of fear, and I think uh, people are are afraid of Canadians that are living abroad. Um, I think that's really unfounded. Um, Do they consider them outsiders now? Are these outsiders interfering with Canada's election? Yeah, well, no, I, I think there certainly is a feeling of that. I mean, we certainly saw the fur that uh, was brought up, um, you know, when we had, a, a, you know, an individual that tried to become prime minister not that long ago, right, that had lived out of Canada for 25 years. And there was a considerable amount of fear that, that he really didn't understand the Canadian system or the Canadian culture, that there was a, a tremendous amount of... I guess a voter, a voter and a leader, though, those are two totally different things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think the, the fear is, is comes, stems from the same place, right? I think yeah. people don't understand that, you know, Canadian expats are engaged, they are involved, they want to be heard, they want to be more involved with Canada. And I think the onus is on us to encourage them to become as engaged as possible. And I think it'll do nothing but better the country. Does that mean that those people have an interest in such that they will returning? They, they, they I mean, I, I guess we don't have that breakdown, but uh, mm. is it people who are uh, out of the country temporarily and have full plans of coming back one day that are, are so involved in this? Uh, which country, which part of the world has the greatest demand for this? Well, the, in terms of the numbers of Canadians that are abroad, the, the largest population is in the United States. Yeah. After that, it goes into the, the UK. There's, yeah. uh, I guess that makes sense. There's, yeah, you know, our, our closest neighbors uh, are, you know, they're, they're good friends, and they've got a lot of Canadians that are, are working down there. There's, I think, close to 1.5 million Canadians that are living down in the States. And in terms of you know, who will be affected, who really cares about this, I think you'll find that it's, it's really those people that that have an interest in coming back to Canada at some point in the future. And I think that's who will be, be exercising their their, uh, their newfound ability to vote. Does the U.S. allow this? The U.S. does allow voting uh, in their elections, um, as so long as uh, taxes are paid. Oh, really? Yeah. So are there Canadian, are there Americans up in Canada that are voting in the United States? There certainly is, yes, absolutely. So you have to be paying taxes, meaning still be related in through work in some way or have property there? That it's a really, Scott, I'm not yeah. really able to comment on that a tremendous amount, and I apologize for, for not, but no. uh, I do know that uh, there are a large number of U.S. citizens in Canada that do uh, vote in their elections. Uh, now what happens as far, uh, now that, that expats have been granted uh, this right, I was going to say privilege, but it's certainly not that. It's a right now. What does that mean for Canadian expat organizations like yours? Well, it, it's uh, you know business as usual for us, really. This is uh, just super exciting. There's other issues that we have that we'll be dealing with, but it's, again, just encouraging Canada, the Canadian government, Canadian business to engage with the Canadian expat uh, population um, around the world. There's, it's an incredible resource. These are educated individuals that that are very familiar with the the culture and the language in the countries that they're living in, and I think uh, it behooves us to to work with them to really try to to uh, to support our own economy here back in Canada. And the Canadians abroad are willing and wanting to do that. Uh, talk about your organization. Who would belong to that? So we have uh, just shy of 13,000 Canadians, and they're living around the world. A good portion of those are people that uh, do uh, work or volunteer for Canadian uh, other Canadian associations, such as the Canadian Business Councils and Chambers of Commerce around the world. And you'll find, you know, at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce or Canadian Business Council or Canadian Social Group in virtually every major city of the world. And you were talking about other issues. What other issues do expats have? What what are the concerns of people living outside the country doing other work? Well, another one that's that's sort of up front right now is uh, Canadian children that are born abroad. Their ability to pass on citizenship to their children is, is limited, um, which I think is you know for us that's a, a sticky point. You know, I'll give myself uh, in, as a case in point. Uh, I was living in Japan for close to 10 years. Both of my uh, children were, were born in Japan. They've subsequently lived their entire lives, so right from age three on, so they're 19 and 20 now. 
uh, but they've lived that entire life. But if either of them happen to have a, a child while born abroad, because they themselves were born abroad, despite the fact that they lived all their lives in Canada, their children are not entitled to Canadian citizenship automatically. Right, yeah. And I think that's, that's wrong. Is that very similar to the situation that we just saw in the news of a gentleman who um, just brought twins back? Uh, that you may not even heard of this story, where uh, he had a, a surrogate mother in another part of the world, and because he's a Canadian citizen but born in Italy, they were challenging whether those two yeah. uh, daughters would be Canadian or not. Uh, is this is this a concern of most expats? Are most expats um, concerned about this? Or are they they just doing whatever they do, and then when they get back to Canada, they'll be more Canadian, I guess. <laughs> Right. You know, I, I think it is a concern for most expats, and it is a concern in the sense that uh, they want to be, they want to feel engaged. They don't want to, to be in a place where if they decide to vote, then they, they can't. They don't want to be in that position. They want to be able to vote if they, if they so desire to. And if you don't mind me getting personal here, where are you living now, and was it business the reason for you traveling this way? Uh, I'm living uh, in Victoria, B.C., yeah. and um, it was business that, that sent me abroad. Uh, what's that like? What do, do, do you feel disenfranchised as a Canadian when you're living in another part of the world and this privilege has been taken away? Yeah, absolutely. Anytime there's a ruling back in Canada that uh, limits your ability to participate in uh, democratic rights or democratic freedoms back in the country that you're born in, it, it certainly does feel disenfranchising, absolutely. Uh, do you think in answering people's fears that, you know, it's outsiders interfering with Canada's election, is there enough? Is there is there fear of that happening? No, not at all. I mean, these are Canadian citizens um, and people that are highly engaged with Canada. So really, there is there's no fear that uh, this is these are outsiders, um, you know, foreign influences that that will uh, you know, change the, the direction of an election process. I really don't see that as a fear at all. Alan Nichols has been with us, President, the Canadian expat. The Superior, uh, Supreme Court of Canada has sided with Canadian expats over the decision to allow them to vote for leadership and elections in this country while living abroad. Alan, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Scott. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.